0: Welcome to Tell Me More Live, the recorded version of our live storytelling night at the Push Comedy Theater in Norfolk, Virginia. In this recording, Pam Francis finds a message for herself in the darkness. By the way, I'm going to issue a trigger warning for anyone who has suffered sexual abuse for this recording. Well, uh, when I was 30, I was married to my first husband. And uh, he was a big drunk. And uh, his dad worked at the railroad when it was still Norfolk and Southern. And he was a big wick. And so Tony could go to work and not really have to work and still get paid. So uh, for his job, he would sell cocaine. (laughs) Okay, so when I met Tony... At uh, the last act, which used to be on Newtown Road an eon ago, because I'm almost 58 in July. Woo! So this a long time ago. Um, started hanging out with him. And before you knew it, you know, I was a cokehead and an alcoholic myself. So took us to marriage counseling. They said, hey, have y'all ever thought about going to AA? And I was like, Yeah. That's it. That's where I'm going to take him, okay, because I didn't have a problem, right? So I take, I take Tony to AA, and Tony's like, mm-mm, I'm not staying. He leaves. I stay. I stay for five years. And through that period, I don't know if anybody's ever been in a 12-sec program. I went to every 12 step program there was. Just for the record, do not go to any sex anonymous meetings, mm-mm. There's rapists there. Don't go there, okay? But I went to all the other ones. You know, big back then was big codependent anonymous. Everybody remembers that, right? Of course, the AA, the NA, the CA, the, you know, we hate your mother, A. All those. I went to all of them. And in this process, you were searching. I was searching for, what is this meaning? Why... Why do I feel this need to search outside of myself for something to make me feel better about myself? What is that? And so I did all these kind of things. Okay, of course I went to every kind of therapy group there was. Even past life regressions, inner child workshops. I walked on fire. I went skydiving. I did sweat lodges. I went white water rafting on five level rapids. I was a kick ass bitch. Okay, <laughs> but I still didn't know why I hated myself, <laughs> you know? So, uh, one day, I'm like, goodbye, Tony, leaving his ass. I'm getting a divorce, right? So now I'm, I'm getting the hang of being in recovery, and I'm feeling better about myself, and, you know, I've started exercising and eating right, and, you know, I'm living alone for the first time in my life. And it was exciting. A little scary, but it was very exciting. So one day... I'm exercising. Had my own house cleaning business. And so I would, I'm not a morning person. I'm still not. So I would go home and i get home about 6 o'clock. And that would be when I would do my Bow with Billy Blanks. Yeah! Okay? Now this guy is kicked ass. I still, fl- I just found the tapes the other night. When I'm cleaning out my shed. I got to get rid of everything in case anybody wants to buy anything. So, <clears throat> I was exercising this day. And you know when you're exercising and it gets you in touch with your body and it gets you in touch with a place in you that you don't really understand or how to really tap into that? But it's, it's like a, a body memory, a, a motion, some kind of memory coming up in me. And the next thing I know, I'm literally flat on the ground i'm curled up like a child in a fetal position and i'm crying hysterically and i'm having these visions of when i was seeing myself like not in my body but out of my body like watching myself have you ever done that you look back, and you're like almost a witness to your own experience. And I could see this shadow coming in my room, and I would be trying to pretend like I was asleep. And you know, like when you're a kid, if you, if you pull the covers up over your head, you thought nobody could get you, the boogeyman could not get you. So I believed if I didn't breathe, they would know I was here. He would not know I was here. Well, of course he did. <clears throat> and my father would come in at night and molest me. And being seven, you trust your father, you love your father, you don't understand this. And so I would stare up at the ceiling, and I remember, like, playing connect the dots and just, like, keeping my mind busy. They kind of call it, like, a disassociation where, like, you leave your own awareness, your own body, and you're, you're occupying yourself while you're in this horrible experience of abuse. So when I had that memory... It was so sort of shocking, even though for decades I didn't ever really feel comfortable around my dad. And he had these weird, just back ass words, ways of expressing affection. Like he would bite you on the cheek and call it a love bite. No, this isn't love, it hurts. Or he would slap you and say, oh, I love you. And as a kid, you're like, hmm, you're getting these mixed messages. You don't really understand that. And so I always had this feeling of fear of my dad, but I didn't really know why until this day that I fell on the floor and had these visions. And so, of course, I was already in counseling. All my trust-up groups and I ran around. I was telling everybody, and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah you got to divorce your parents, divorce this, divorce that, and, you know, do all this therapy. So, I went to my mother, because my parents were divorced at this time, and I told my mom, she didn't believe me, she said, if I had pictures, I might believe it. So, you don't have any evidence. I mean, there's there's no evidence you have when you're a child being molested. And so there was this place in me that was, like, doubtful. Did I really have that? Did, did I really, did I imagine that? Was that real? Am I just jumping on this bandwagon because everyone and his brother in that eight, eight, late 80s and 90s were survivors of sexual abuse and... You know, what, what was this all about? But I had some great therapists, and they would go, just stay with your feelings, Pam. Trust yourself. Even though it doesn't make sense. It doesn't need to make sense. You only need to trust yourself. So, okay, I'm going to trust myself. So I went for several years estranged from my father, And he had moved out to Las Vegas when my parents got divorced. And he would call me every 6 or 12 months and say, Hey, am I still the man? And that was his terminology for, you still think I molested you? And I'd go, Yeah. Yeah, Dad, you're still the man. And our conversations wouldn't last long. This went on for years. One day, the phone rang. And I heard my dad on the other line. And he said, Am I still the man? And I said, Well, I know you don't think you're the man, Dad. In all these years of therapy, and all this inner work on myself, what I was really striving for was a peace. A peace within Pam that didn't matter if he acknowledged what he did, or if my mother believed me, or if he ever apologized. It, It no longer mattered, because what mattered was I could trust what I was feeling. I could believe in my own self. And there was nothing outside of me that was ever going to heal me, ever. So I get the call. And we come to find out he's dying of cancer. And he's been begging me and my sister to come for years, to come to Vegas and go see the shows and the slots and woohoo, the strip. Well, this particular phone call, I say, well, I'll talk to Debbie. We'll see. Maybe we'll come. We talked and we did. And as we were walking towards him in the airport, it was this just this kind of shriveled, old, wrinkled up, really just wasting away old man. And I remember my sister and I like almost falling back and like grabbing each other and going, Oh my God, is that dad? And it was. And so our visit, we didn't get to do any of those things that he wanted to do because he was too sick. So we went home. Within a few months, we got a phone call from his girlfriend, Judy. Your father has fallen, and uh, he's broke his hip, and he has cancer, and it's everywhere, and he's dying And they're going to put him in a nursing home because I can't take care of him. I did this with my first husband. I can't do it again. Somebody has to come take care of him. So we have this big family meeting. Now, by this time, I'm married again. (laughs) Why I kept doing that, I don't know. So we're at the family meeting, and there's my mother. She's remarried. There's my sister. She has the illegitimate son. You know, I'm, you know, me. I'm sitting there self-employed, my house cleaning business. And so there's this big discussion. Who is going to go put him in a home? Who's going to do this? And unbeknownst to me unaware to me this this voice said, you are. You're going. You go, Pam. And, I, and I, I couldn't put words to it. My friends would say, what? Are you crazy? After what he did to you? And he's never apologized? And you're going to go out there and you're going to take care of your dying dad? And I couldn't understand why I was going. But I knew... I was called to go. Do, do you know what that... Well, you have this inner earning, a, a, a drive, a pull, that you, you have to do something or not do something. And you don't really know why. You just, you just follow. So that's what I did. I went. And there was a big chaos with my mother and my sister and the drama and the in and the out. And there came a day when my dad and me and my sister were having this conversation, and it was the only time really I can remember in my entire life where we were having a conversation, and he was being open and honest, and he was sharing things. Like, I didn't know how to be a father. I was Catholic. They said we couldn't. Use a condom We had to have children I didn't know how to be a father My, my parents weren't good to me and, and I ran away to be in the Navy And I, I don't I, I was a rotten father And I'm sorry And that day was magical And it was It was healing It was a healing in me And I felt well, you're doing the right thing, Pam. You know, you, you, you were supposed to come here. I mean, uh, how could you let your, your father just waste away and some nursing home? Because obviously he's sick. You can't molest your child unless you're sick. And all my years of therapy and 12-stepping and prayer and meditation and writing and journaling and self-inventory told me... To forgive. That's where the road always led. To forgive. And I wanted so much to forgive. So, one day it was just me and my dad were the only ones left. Everybody else had gone home. And It was a waiting period. I don't know if anybody out there has ever had the horrible, horrific experience of watching someone that you may or may not love waste away, die, slip away from you. And there's nothing you can do, and you can't make it better, you know. I'd go sweat lodging, and I'd do all these things, and I'd put crystals underneath his bed, and I was singing the, da- the Dalai Lama. You know, I was doing all kinds of crazy shit, you know? But nothing was going to stop what was happening. So we had a spiritual advisor from hospice named Steve, and he would come. Now, ironically, remember, I'm sober during this time. Clean and sober. And there were plenty of pills around there. I could have just popped them up, went and got me some booze, whatever. It's a miracle. I lived through this experience sober. And the uh, hospice counselor would come and he would say, Well, you know, Pam, as he's getting worse, certain things are going to be happening. And so I want you to be prepared for death. And they, they can often, patients, have what they call our night fits. And it's, they're sleeping, and they're having some kind of emotional trauma. And the spiritual counselor would often say, well, Pam, it's kind of like they're in between two worlds. You know, they're dying, but they're still here. They're going, but they're not gone. And they kind of hover in between the here and the wherever they're going. And so when he has these night fits, there's not really anything you can do about it. You can just go in and try to calm him with your voice and straighten his covers and try to soothe him best you can. So I was accustomed to Night fits and going in there and straightening his covers and picking up anything he'd knocked off his bed tray and it's okay, Dad, it's okay. Well, one night I heard this big bang and this big crash. Oh my God! And I get up and I run down the hall and I open his bedroom door and I'm standing there and I say, Dad. What's wrong? And his eyes are open, and he's saying, Uncle Charlie, is that you? Uncle Charlie was his best friend. I don't know why he called him Uncle Charlie, because we did, okay? And he was, he was in this, this state of, of fit and chaos. And it kind of, because it happened so many times, It was kind of like, oh, here we go again. And it kind of made me chuckle because so many of my friends, knowing I was going to go out there and take care of my dad, and he was paralyzed and couldn't walk, they were like, aha, we know where you're going. You're going to Kathy Bates him like in the movie Misery. You're going to get your revenge. We know. And I'm sure he thought that too because for, you know, Months, He was like scared shitless that I was the only one there taking care of him anymore, right? And I remember one day I went in, because like I said, I'm not a morning person. He had to have his pills every morning at 7 a.m. And they go, how are you going to get up at 7 a.m. and give him his medicine? Well, I guess I'll just set the clock. Okay, how long does it take? Give somebody a pill. Wasn't eating anymore. I'll go back to bed. (laughs) This is, you know, this is not rocket science, people. So I'm standing there, and I know the hall lights behind me, and he's saying, Uncle Charlie, is that you? Uncle Charlie! And I'm like, no, Dad, it's me. It's Pam. But the closer I got to his bed, the more I realized he he didn't see me. He he didn't see me. I don't know who he thought he saw. Maybe it was Uncle Charlie or just a shadow or an angel or a demon. I don't know what he saw. I kept getting closer, and he'd knocked everything off his bed tray, and his covers were just, and he was in a panic. And he was trying to sit up, but he was so weak. He couldn't sit up on his own, but he wanted to so bad. And he was in a frantic, and he just had to be heard. And he said, Uncle Charlie, call the doctor. I've been touching little girls. And I froze. I froze. Did I I just hear him say that? What do you mean call a doctor? Oh, yeah, he's sick. He must know he's sick if he said something like that. But I ran out of the room, and I just broke down in tears. And it wasn't a couple more days later, he was dead. He died. So my sister came, we sold the house, we sold everything, we moved back. I'm back at Virginia, I'm back at work. And I'm talking about this, because in 12 step groups you talked about shit all over and over and over and over, okay? And the theory was that the more you share your story, it's kind of like a triple antibiotic for other people's wounds, their emotional and psychic wounds, because they bond with you and they say, Yeah, I'm not alone. Look, they feel that way. This is real. I'm okay. I'm not crazy. And I was sharing. And again, what? Are you crazy? Why did you even go there, Pam? What? And it was an epiphany that I had like this. Remember that movie? Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner, one of my favorite movies. Okay, with the very end where Shoeless Joe Jackson is getting ready to walk back into the field, and Ray's standing out there, and he, he sees his dad, the catcher in a distance, and he's like, Oh, build it and he will come. I built it for him. But shoeless Joe Jackson, he said, No, Ray, you built it for you. And it was in that moment I knew why I had gone to Las Vegas. It was never for him. It was always for me. And that grace is a whisper. It's something that you hear... And you don't really know where it's coming from or why or what it means. But grace will whisper to you if you listen. And from that moment on, I paid attention to every whisper, every wrench in my gut, every time it was like, oh, wait, I knew that. Something's telling me I better pay attention. We've all done that, haven't we, a hundred times. (gasps) Darn, I knew I should have done that. Damn it, why did I do that? Because we heard the whisper. And that's grace. That is a blessing. That is a moment, an opportunity for us. (laughs) It's not for anybody else. I went there for Pam. And that day and in that moment, I received the blessing that I had worked all those years and all those groups and all those venues and all that stuff for that day, for that message, for that blessing, for that grace. Thank you. If you'd like to come out and tell a story like this one, or just enjoy the show, visit tellmemorelive.org. That's tellmemorelive.org. We will find a list of upcoming shows, submission and contact forms, and more storyteller podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening to Tell Me More Live.